0: The Bermuda Triangle. Ever heard of the Bermuda Triangle? It's a mysterious area of the Atlantic Ocean. It lies between Miami, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. In its spacious waters, aircraft and watercraft have inexplicably vanished. Piracy and weather and human error and equipment failure have all been ruled out as possible explanations. Popular culture attributes these strange phenomena to paranormal activity. Perhaps the Bermuda Triangle is a flashpoint for Satan and his devils. To explain the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, we can only speculate. But there is another triangular set of coordinates that for a few years saw more paranormal and supernatural activity than any other place this planet has ever seen. And we can trace the supernatural occurrences that happened there to a definitive source. During a three-year span, probably from 29 to 32 AD, on the northern shore of Israel's Sea of Galilee, paranormal and supernatural phenomena occurred on a regular basis. Storms miraculously ceased. A sack lunch of fish and chips was multiplied to feed 15,000 hungry people. A surfer was seen on top of the water's surface without his surfboard. Call it the Gospel Triangle. The area between three cities, a mere three miles apart, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Beseda. Here Jesus did the lion's share of his miracles. The Nelson's Bible Dictionary estimates that 18 of Jesus' 33 recorded miracles, that's 55%, were performed in this small triangle. Tonight we are headed into the Gospel Triangle, where Jesus worked mysterious miracles to prove clearly and conclusively That he was God. Chapter 6 of John begins. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The sea, as it's called, is a freshwater lake. It's the largest in Israel. It's in the northeast corner of the country. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. In the early 1st century, under Roman rule, a flourishing and populous city grew up on the western shore of the lake. The Romans named it after its emperor, their emperor, Tiberius. They referred to the lake by the name of the city. They called it the Sea of Tiberius. Since the Romans built Tiberius over a Jewish graveyard... Few Jews lived in the city in Jesus' day. In fact, there's no mention in the Gospels of Jesus or his disciples ever visiting Tiberias. Jesus spent most of his time around the lake on the north shore of the lake, the Jewish side of the lake, what we call the Gospel Triangle. Verse 2 tells us, Then a great multitude followed Jesus because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now apparently, Jesus retreated to escape the crowd and to have some alone time with his men. Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says that the miracle that follows occurred in a deserted place that belonged to the city of Bethsaida. Bethsaida means house of fishing. Bethsaida was a fishing village on the lake's northeast shore. Now, the problem in locating the town is that there may have been two Besedas. Today, the ruins of ancient Beseda are found on a hill or a tell east of where the Jordan feeds into the lake, three miles from Capernaum. But the traditional site of the feeding of the 5,000 is actually south of Capernaum. It's a location called by the Arabic name Tabgah. The word "tabga means seven springs. And the village there was built over warm water springs that feed the lake and make for good fishing. Here the mountain slopes down to the sea. And, and Linwa took that picture of me there uh, sitting by the sea right there at Tabgah with my Bible in my hand. And Lin, thank you very much. That's one of my favorite pictures. That's the Sea of Galilee and that's the area where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. Some scholars think that Tabgha was a second Bethsaida, sort of the Bethsaida of Galilee, as they call it. We're unsure of the exact location of Bethsaida, but we're certain it was centered in the Gospel Triangle, there along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. This means it was springtime. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and, seeing a great multitude coming toward him, So much for escaping the crowd. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now John chapter 1 verse 44 tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida. He knows the area. Jesus is saying, hey, you know a grocery store around here, Philip? But this Jesus said to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now one of these days I'm going to do a a series of studies on each of the disciples. When you study their personality and their character, it's fascinating. Philip was the pragmatic disciple. Here Philip whips out his pocket calculator and he creates an equation that'll decide how much they need. To feed a crowd... Verse 10 says, 5,000 men, add women, add children. He figures the cost will be at least 200 denarii. Now, this was a very, very large sum. Eight months' wages. I mean, for a modern equivalency, think $40,000. But there was one key factor that Philip left out of his equation, and that was Jesus. The disciples are about to learn that no matter how little you have or how much you lack, when you've got Jesus, you've got more than enough. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? I mean, there's a crowd of people, 5,000 men. That means probably 15,000 people. And, And all he's got is five barley loaves and two fish. You know, three times in the gospel we see Andrew. Here, Andrew brings this little boy to Jesus. And it's interesting. Three times we see Andrew, and on each occasion, we find him bringing somebody to Jesus. I want to be like Andrew. I hope you want to be an Andrew and bring somebody to Jesus. Now, other than Jesus' own resurrection, the miracle of the multiplication, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. This was an amazing miracle. I mean, even among the disciples, they saw it as unique among the miraculous. Later in the chapter, the wind and waves are going to obey Jesus, but here, the electrons and the protons obey Jesus. Jesus manipulates the atomic structure of the loaves and the fish, then multiplies the portions. This is a molecular miracle. John does give us, though, a couple of insights that we don't get from the other gospel writers. The Greek word he uses for fish, opsarion, means little fish, little minnows. We usually eat lunch at a kibbutz called Ingev over on the uh, east side of the lake. And you can look around in the shallow water there and you can see all the little minnows, the little small, i sorry, the little fish swimming around in the water. The lake is full of these little bite-sized minnows. Jesus didn't feed the 5,000 with two big grouper. He did it with a couple of sardines. John also tells us that the boys' loaves were made of barley, not wheat. Barley was the poor man's bread. This little boy's lunch was pretty skimpy. It was really more a snack. Cheap bread and two sardines. That's what Jesus had to work with. Verse 10 says, Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus is creating some organization here. Soon he's about to serve up a massive banquet. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish. And Here's the kicker. As much as they wanted. It was a miracle. 15,000 people were fed from one kid's meal. Can you believe it? And notice Jesus didn't just provide them What was needed. I really like this. It says he gave them as much as they wanted. He allowed the crowd to go back for seconds and thirds. You know I get tired of folks who cast a cloud of doubt over God's benevolence. Happens all the time. You'll hear people make comments. Well God doesn't promise to give us what we want. He just promises to give us what we need. Well, technically that's true, but it's only half true. God is gracious. He's a dad who desires to give good gifts to his kids. He loves us. It's his delight to give us not just what we need, but what we want, as much as we want. Now, sometimes he can. Sometimes he can't because our desires might hurt us or they might violate his plan. But oftentimes he can. And he does give us what we want and he even gives us more than we want. God likes to please his kids. That's the God that I serve. And so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. They even had leftovers. And I love the lesson here. Jesus never wastes a miracle. And neither should we. You know, John's gospel revealed that Jesus' miracles taught spiritual truths. His miracles always carried with them a message. And it's true today. Whenever God works a miracle in your life, don't lose it, man. Don't waste it. Sit on it. Chew on it. Savor it. Always remember it. Never forget. Never lose a miracle. Verse 13. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Twelve baskets full, isn't that an interesting uh, detail? Perhaps the twelve baskets of leftovers were one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. I think more likely, Jesus had a whole basket of leftovers for each of the twelve faithless disciples. Here's the point though, there is more than enough when God is at work. When you factor God into the equation... Suddenly, it makes sense. Suddenly, it provides. Bring to Jesus your skimpiness and let him transform it with his lavishness. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, for years, I I used to cheer for the Los Angeles Dodgers. But I never knew the meaning of their nickname. You see, originally, the team played in New York City. And they were known as the Trolley Dodgers. They got their unusual nickname from the nimble pedestrians who were able to navigate the busy city streets without colliding into a downtown trolley. Well, here, Jesus is a Dodger. The crowd has become a bandwagon. They want to drag Jesus on board. They want to make him king. And Jesus dodges their intentions. You see, the Jews wanted an earthly kingdom with a political king. They wanted a coronation. But the only crown Jesus would ever wear on earth was a crown of thorns. Oh, what they could do with the miracle power of Jesus The Jews could use his supernatural prowess to accomplish their political aims. Jesus, though, refused to be manipulated. He was determined to do only the will of the Father. And so again, Jesus goes mountain climbing in order to dodge the crowd. Verse 16, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and they went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now, now, this would just be a short trip. You, you see the, uh, the layout here on the, on the map. From Tabga to Capernaum, or even from Bethsaida to Capernaum, we're just talking a few miles, either by land or sea. It's just a, it's just a short little jaunt. We're told, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. You know, it was, it was dark, but, but they knew it wouldn't take them long. Just, just a short little hop. But then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Now let me tell you how this works. Topographically, the Sea of Galilee sits in the bottom of a bowl. The Lebanese mountains are to the north. They reach 8,000 feet. The Golan Heights are to the north and the east. The hills of the upper and lower Galilee are to the west. And this little lake sits at the bottom of the funnel, 680 feet below sea level. So here's what happens. The cold wind from the north swoops down on top of the warm air on the surface of the lake. And violent storms erupt suddenly. It happens all the time. This is what victimized the disciples. Their little skip across the lake suddenly becomes a fight for their lives. Verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four miles... Remember, at the most it was two miles to Capernaum. But they were rowing three or four miles. You see, minutes of smooth sailing had turned into hours of storm fighting. The other gospels indicate that they fought the storm for close to eight hours. And in the midst of this tug of war with the weather... The disciples suddenly, they look up, and guess what they see? They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. Now, Mark chapter 6, verse 47, says that by now, this boat is out in the middle of the lake, miles away from where they were intended. They've been knocked way off course. John ends verse 19 with an understatement. The disciples were afraid. I would imagine so. The sudden storm and now the surprise surfer have got them scared. They're rubbing their eyes. What is this we're seeing? I can't believe this. Look, they had been thrilled by the miracle the day before. Now they're being tested by a storm. And you know, God does both. And he works in this way frequently. He thrills us and then he tests us. But Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I I love this. Notice Jesus doesn't say the first thing about the storm. He, He doesn't reveal how or even if he's going to quell the storm. He doesn't say how it started. He doesn't say how it's going to end. He doesn't say what he's going to do about it. He says nothing about the storm. All he says is, it is I, do not be afraid. Catch this. He expects his presence in the midst of the storm to be enough to vanquish their fears. Jesus cares more about calming the storm in the disciples than he does about calming the storm on the sea. Peace in the boat precedes peace on the water. And that's the way it always works. You know, apparently the storm, the circumstances was never the issue. Jesus knew all along he could take care of that. The only real question was their faith in the midst of those circumstances. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And I, I, I mean, what are they going to do? Make him walk the rest of the way? I mean, of course they received him into the boat. And here's another miracle. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. By now they've been dragged out to the middle of the water. And yet suddenly, boom, in an instant... They're back on the shore. They're back docked on the shore. What happens here? Jesus takes a little rapture practice, apparently. One moment the disciples are stuck in the middle of the lake, the next they've reached the other shore. They cover the four miles in a split second. Verse 22 tells us, On the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. In other words, where was Jesus? Several boats had sailed into Bethsaida, but only one boat had sailed out, the disciples' boat, and everyone knew that Jesus wasn't on board. He had not been seen on board the boat. Now the word is out. Jesus is in Capernaum. How did he get there? Verse 25 tells us, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I mean, they're asking about his movements, but What Jesus is interested in is their motives. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You know, the Roman formula for controlling the masses was bread and circuses. Just keep the people fed, keep the public entertained, and they'll be content. Did you know that Rome set aside 93 days annually as public holidays? How'd you like to be a citizen in the Roman Empire? You get 93 days off, 93 holidays. Games and food and entertainment were government-sponsored. You see, Rome realized it was cheaper to pay for bread and circuses than to put down revolts and keep up prisons. And to the masses who followed Jesus, they had this same bread and circus mentality. They viewed Jesus as a meal ticket, as a sideshow. To them, Jesus was a means to an end rather than an end in himself. You see, they should have probed deeper. What did these miracles say about this man? If the miracles are signs, what then are their significance? Those are the questions they should have been asking. Years ago, I, I led the, a fellowship of Christian athletes group at Parkview High School. And every year, we, we planned a snow skiing trip in uh, the month of February. Well, before the trip, the weeks before the trip, man, We'd have huge crowds. Fifty, sixty, seventy kids would come out to the the FCA group. They would attend our meetings. Why? Because they were hungry for God? No, hate to say it, but no. It was because they wanted to go snow skiing. And it was always interesting. The week we came back from the snow skiing trip, once we'd taken the trip, man, we'd, we'd probably have a dozen people show up. Dozen strong. You know, people still have the same problem. People serve God for what they can get out of Him. They're interested as long as God helps them advance their own agenda. They think, oh, Jesus will make me rich. He'll make me successful. He'll make me happy. Hey, Jesus will solve my problems. Hey, Jesus will, will work out my marriage. As long as they get out of it what they want, they'll follow Him. But the moment Jesus challenges them with a higher agenda... Suddenly they bolt. This was the crowd that followed Jesus. And Jesus addresses them. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. See, bread was never the point. The miracle of the loaves and fish wasn't intended as a meal plan in the school cafeteria. It was a spiritual lesson. Jesus had filled their stomachs to teach them that he was the one who could fill their soul. But the masses had missed the message. They strived for perishables, for food and for fun. And for force, they tried to use the power of Jesus to enhance an earthly life. While Jesus showed his power to point them to a deeper spiritual life. You know, sadly, as a pastor, I meet folks who who are disappointed with God. They feel like God has let them down. And usually these people have a bread and circus mentality. Oh, they long for the food or the fun that perishes. People are so fickle. They serve God as long as it serves them. They follow Him for selfish reasons. People still treat Jesus like a meal ticket or a sideshow rather than the Lord. And Jesus' word today is the same as it was then. He says to you and me, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? <laughs> and every cult, every religion has its own answer to this question. Well, what is the work of God? What do you do to do the work of God? Islam says, Fast on the month of Ramadan. Make your pilgrimage to Mecca. Roman Catholicism says, do penance, make your confession, attend mass. Hinduism says, torture the body, push your physical endurance. Mormonism says, follow Joseph Smith, do a mission, decaffeinate. Judaism says, keep the law according to the tradition of the elders. But what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about pleasing God? According to Jesus, what can we do to do the works of God? Here's God's sole requirement for you and me. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Pleasing God is so simple. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's the work that God requires you and I to do in order to to earn heaven. In order to be pleasing to God. It's to believe in the son that he sent into the world. You see, all religions break down into two categories. On the one hand, you've got religions that expect you to do some great work. It's up to you to atone for your sin or to prove your worth. You see, every religion but one fits into this first category. The second category is a grouping of one. Christianity claims that God is so holy, nothing we can do is enough to please Him. And yet because He loves us, He's done the work for us. Through Jesus, He's reconciled the world to Himself. Now, the only work left for us to do is to trust in the sufficiency of His Son. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? This is the work of God. Not some great sacrifice, not some tremendous offering. This is the work of God. If you want to please God, believe in His Son. This is the work of God, Jesus says, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Verse 30, Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? I mean, this is amazing. Have they forgotten what He did yesterday with the fish and chips? Wasn't that a sign? I mean, obviously, these people didn't need additional evidence for faith. They were just prodding Jesus for more thrills. Jesus answers them, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You know, the rabbis taught that the Messiah would cause manna to fall from heaven, as in the days of Moses. But Jesus continues, Then He said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread, the sustenance that satisfies the soul of man is not manna, but it's a man. It's the Messiah. Manna Israel in the desert, but the knowledge of the man Christ Jesus feeds all men in all times. Jesus alone can meet our deeper hunger. Verse 34 tells us, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You know, I read an interesting story of a missionary in India. As he was boarding a train one day, he handed a man a New Testament. The man opened it up and he noticed that it was the Christian Scriptures and he angrily ripped it up and he tossed it out of the train into the wind and, of course, the wind blew the pages in all different directions. You might think that was the end of the story, but a young man in search of the truth was walking down the rails that day and he reached down... And he picked up a little scrap of paper and he read these words, The Bread of Life. The fellow later said that these were the most beautiful words that he had ever read. In fact, he asked a friend what they meant. And he was told that they came from the Christian scriptures. But a Hindu shouldn't read them lest he be defiled. The man was undaunted. He was a seeker. He was hungry. He found a New Testament and he discovered this verse. Here in John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The young man was converted to Christ and became a pastor. A bread distributor. You know, in ancient Israel, bread was not just one of the four major food groups. It was the main food. In ancient times and throughout the Middle East, even today, bread is the sustenance of life. It is the main staple in a person's diet. When Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, it would be like me saying the protein of life or the the vitamin of life. Jesus was saying that he alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger. He alone contains the nutrients and the fiber and the minerals and the vitamins and the protein that we need. He is the carbo Christ, the true soul food. Jesus is the bread of life. He contains all the FDA daily requirements that you need. And here's a question. Are you bread fed? Have you been feeding on Jesus? Have you been trusting in Him for life and love and happiness and joy? Or have you been looking to other things? It's interesting. Once you're bread fed, you'll, you'll never hunger. For anything else, you'll never thirst again once you're bread fed. You know, I I once read a Reader's Digest survey that said women who go to the grocery store to go grocery shopping without eating something beforehand, they spend $28.80 more on food. Whereas if they eat something prior to their grocery shopping they'll spend $37.25 less. You see, when your stomach is full, you're less vulnerable to impulse spending. And so it is with the heart that's bread-fed, that's been feeding on the bread of life. Once your hunger's been satisfied, once your thirst has been slaked by Jesus, the things of this world are less appealing. You're less likely to follow tempting impulses. Once you're in the habit of being bread fed, I mean, nothing else can satisfy, nothing else will satisfy that hunger. Jesus continues speaking to the crowd in verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this idea of Jesus coming down from heaven was a clear claim of his divinity. I mean, humans don't exist before they're born. You didn't come from anywhere before you were born. When you were born, that's your beginning right there. That, That was it. Well, you might have been the gleam in your daddy's eye. But besides that, I mean, that was it. Your birth was your beginning. But Jesus always talked about, I've come from above. Jesus had a beginning before his birth. Actually, Jesus had no beginning. But Jesus existed before his birth. Humans don't exist until they're born. Jesus still came from heaven. He preexisted his birth. Jesus was God who had come to do the will of God. And, and here's the heart of a true servant. Jesus came not to do my own will, he says, but the will of him who sent me. Boy, may we all have that same attitude in this coming new year. And he says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Now notice, here's a passage that clearly teaches predestination. The redeemed are defined by Jesus as, All the Father has given to me, as if God chose us in advance and gave us as gifts to His Son. That's true. And yet this passage also teaches free will. For the redeemed are also defined as those who see the Son and believe in Him. Here it's also true. Salvation is predicated on our own choice. So which is it? Does God choose us or do we choose God? You know, it is, it's interesting that Jesus taught both God's sovereignty And human responsibility. And he made no attempt to reconcile the two viewpoints. He just taught them both. Jesus understood that in God's infinite wisdom, what appears to be a contradiction to us is actually a carefully choreographed partnership. Even though it baffles us, it harmonizes in God's plan. You see, everyone God chose chooses God and everyone who chooses God was chosen by God and Jesus says that works for me once a man asked the famed preacher C.H. Spurgeon how he could reconcile that the Bible teaches both predestination and free will I love Spurgeon's reply it was classic he said I never try to reconcile friends verse 41 says the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? That was a big issue to them. They understood that Jesus' claim to pre exist, his birth, was a proclamation of his deity. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. You know, three times now Jesus speaks of the resurrection of our bodies, being raised up in the last day. You know, apparently in the mind of our Lord, our salvation isn't complete until our decaying body gets resurrected. You know, your salvation... Our salvation, the salvation Jesus offers us. It redeems everything that sin has touched. Sometimes we don't realize how far-reaching and how broad and sweeping salvation truly is. We think we've just been saved from our sins. True, sal- The salvation Jesus brings redeems everything that sin has touched. That, that means... Nature, that means the universe, that means aging and death, that means sickness, that means hostility between man and animals, that means different diseases. I mean, everything that sin has touched will one day be redeemed. That's God's plan. That's how complete a salvation Jesus has worked for us. And ultimately, that means the resurrection of these bodies. That the effect of sin upon these bodies will one day be reversed. And these bodies will be resurrected. These corruptible bodies will put on incorruptibility. I mean, the salvation that Jesus brings puts an end to all sin's destructive effects. One day, He's going to return and He's going to raise our dead bodies from the grave. Or if you've been cremated, He's going to gather up your ashes out of Lake Lanier and put you back together. He's going to resurrect our bodies. Everything sin has touched is going to be redeemed and made right again. Jesus continues in verse 45. It is written in the Prophets. And they shall all be taught by God. And here he quotes Isaiah 54 verse 13. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Wow, Jesus had seen the Father. You know, my Uncle Jim, he played baseball with Joe DiMaggio while he was in the Navy in World War II. And as a kid... I always looked up to my Uncle Jim. Wow, you played baseball with Joe DiMaggio? I mean, I thought my Uncle Jim was somebody special because he had been on the same field with the great Jolton Joe. Imagine the disciples now reflecting here on verse 46. They had been with a man who had actually seen the Father. Wow! No human eye had ever seen the Father except Jesus. And yet the disciples had been able to live with him. And they'd heard him speak and they'd seen his miracles. How privileged they were. And Jesus tells them, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. For I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus fed the multitudes around the Sea of Galilee on a couple of occasions, but God fed Israel in the wilderness daily for 40 years. Every day God supplied them a miracle. The manna, the mysterious wafer, appeared on the ground. And the manna sustained them physically, just as Jesus sustains us spiritually. Manna was good for the belly, it was good for the body. Yet those who ate the miracle manna, Jesus says, eventually died. Moses' bread didn't provide eternal life. In contrast, Jesus says anyone who eats his bread, who believes in him, will live forever. Feed on eternal sustenance and it guarantees eternal life. As it turns out, the manna's primary purpose was really to just depict Jesus. And it did so in at least six ways. Let me give them to you. First, it was a mystery. You know what the word manna means? It means, what is it? They didn't know what it was. And likewise, Jesus was a mystery to the Jews. Second, the manna always came at night. And Jesus came in the darkness of man's sin. Third, manna was small, which speaks of Jesus' humility. Third manna was round. Fourth, manna was round, which speaks of Jesus' eternal nature. Fifth, it was white, which speaks of his purity. And then sixth, manna was sweet to the taste, which also describes Jesus. In essence, manna was the appetizer. It was supposed to whet Israel's appetite for the main entree, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Well, verse 52 tells us, The Jews, therefore, they quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, now again, this was the problem that keeps reoccurring. This was Nicodemus' problem. This is the problem the woman at the well had. They took Jesus literally when in reality he was speaking figuratively. You remember Nicodemus' initial question? When Jesus said, You must be born again, he says, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? He's thinking literally rather than figuratively. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (laughs) Jesus even gets more metaphorical in his language. Now obviously Jesus wasn't advocating cannibalism. Literally, eating human flesh and drinking human blood were both prohibited by God in the Mosaic law. Jesus obviously meant to be taken spiritually, metaphorically. To eat and to drink in a spiritual sense is to believe. You know, eating and drinking, they're a lot like faith, they're simple, untaught, natural acts. A child enters the world and quickly learns to eat and drink. Likewise, human beings are born into this world with the innate ability to have faith. Everybody trusts or believes in somebody or something, don't they? To to eat his flesh, to drink his blood was the equivalent of trust and faith. It's sad when it comes to communion. Roman Catholicism has made the same mistake as Nicodemus. The woman at the well, the Jews right here. They've taken the words of Jesus literally rather than spiritually. The Catholic concept of communion, or as they like to call it, the doctrine of transubstantiation, says that when the wine and the bread are blessed by the priest, they literally become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. That was never intended by Jesus. This is the same kind of wooden literalism that Jesus rebukes here in John chapter 6. To perk, the spirituality of his disciples, Jesus is speaking to them truths in spiritual terms. And he says to them in verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, a mention of the resurrection. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The body and blood of Jesus supply eternal life. This is the real food, he says. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You see, just as your body metabolizes natural foods through eating and drinking, your spirit interacts with Jesus and metabolizes spiritual foods. As we have faith and as we trust, we sense his presence. We draw from his strength. We abide in him. When we eat and when we drink, or in our case, when we have faith. For as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Eating and drinking are to the material world, world what believing and receiving are in the spiritual world. Evidently, Jesus sees faith as spiritual consumption. When you have faith, you're, you're receiving. And you're metabolizing. You're taking in spiritual sustenance, strength. This is why faith is more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just a verbal pledge. Faith is putting all of the effects and promises of Jesus to the lips of my life and chewing on their implications and partaking of their power. And submitting my life to the content of the life I receive from Jesus. And allowing His life to become my life. That happens through faith. In a spiritual sense, faith is just like eating and drinking. It's been said, you are what you eat. You ever heard that expression? Over the last couple of years, I've become a little more health conscious. I started reading labels and counting calories and I realize that the quality of the food that I take in affects the quality of the life that I live. And the same is true for us spiritually. Faith does for the spirit what eating does for the body. We digest and we consume and we metabolize Jesus in our lives through faith. As Jesus said, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And if you've been with us to uh, Israel, you've stood right there in that synagogue. He says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Now now the intent of Jesus' figurative language was to encourage his followers to be more spiritual in their thinking. He was challenging them to see life from a spiritual, eternal perspective. They thought he was just being difficult and hard to understand. You know, the disciples wanted Jesus to make the way easier. Rather than harder. And they were offended because he wouldn't. He wanted them to reach higher. He wanted them to think more spiritually. He refused to drop the bar to accommodate them. Instead, he wanted to push them upwards. And I think it's true today. If you've got the same mentality. That you want Jesus to make it all easier. Rather than harder. Jesus is going to offend you too, eventually. He doesn't drop the bar so we can climb over. He gives us the push so that we can rise above. Verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? If they saw Jesus ascend to heaven with their eyes, it would be easier to believe that he was from heaven and he'd been sent to them. After the resurrection and the ascension, this would prove to be true. In the meantime, he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. When Jesus spoke of eating and drinking and receiving his life, he was referring to spiritual dynamics, not physical digestion. Real life, eternal life, doesn't involve the gallbladder and the gastric juices. It involves God's spirit. Jesus is concerned not about our digestive tract, but are we on a spiritual track? That's where he's trying to put us. That's where he's trying to get us. That's why he spoke to them in spiritual terms. Now, In verse 64, Jesus makes a jarring statement. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Of course, Judas was one. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless he has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This was was a moving day. This was a turning point for many people that day. It was right here that Jesus starts thinning out the crowd. His hard sayings, as the disciples called them. Had turned back the ambulance chasers and the thrill seekers, those with the bread and circus mentality, that they became discouraged. They decided to go home. It's here in John chapter 6 that Jesus starts separating out the pretenders from the contenders. He starts getting down to those that are truly serious about following him and all that that means. I mean, we could attract a big crowd if all we were interested in was bread and circus. But but if we're trying to to push people higher, if we're trying to get people to think spiritually, it's going to thin out the crowd. Verse 67 is a moment of decision for Jesus' closest men. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? It's your choice. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What a wonderful statement of faith. I'm sure Peter didn't understand all that Jesus had said that day. I'm sure he didn't understand the implications of all that Jesus had done. But he had seen enough. He had heard enough. To know that this Jesus had the goods. He claimed to be God. And both his power and his words backed up his claim. Peter knew there was something different about Jesus. And the more Peter heard and saw. The more it narrowed his choices. And that's why he says. Jesus you alone have the words of eternal life. You know sometimes I feel like Peter. Following Jesus can be a challenge. Following Jesus can be unsettling at times. It can be uncomfortable at times. You're never quite sure what to expect when you follow Jesus. You're never sure where the road might lead. But when it's over, and when you've obeyed, you're never disappointed. The words of Jesus always bring life, and reality, and perspective. And I love Peter's conclusion. It's the same conclusion that I come to. To whom should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Chapter 6 closes. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Don't get too down on yourself when you choose a friend that turns out to be a devil. Happened to Jesus too. There we have John chapter 6.